Uh, well, if you've got a Bible nearby you, do grab uh, a copy and uh, turn again to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. Uh, that's page uh, 341 if you're looking at the uh, uh, English Church Bibles. Uh, and we're going to finish that story. We left it on tenterhooks. Let's see how the story ends. Just while you're turning there, uh, let me uh, just say how glad I am to be with you and to be able to come to uh, share God's Word with you today. Uh, we've got various connections uh, with the church here. Ruth used to be a, a member with us at Beast and Free. Uh, I've known Hannah Donagani for, uh, well, I reckon it's nearly 20 years now, Hannah. Sorry about that. Um, Hannah was a student in Southampton uh, while I was at church there. And uh, so it's really a great privilege to come and share God's Word with you. Uh, look at this passage, this well-known passage from 1 Samuel 17. Uh, so let's pick that up then at verse 38 uh, and hear God's word together. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a, car, a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. And I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem and he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. Let's just ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, Father, we look to you to come by your spirit to give us understanding of the things that we've read and to apply and press these things into our heart and lives. Uh, Lord, help us to respond this morning in repentance and faith to the things that you'd say to us and help us as we speak and as we listen to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I wonder when you last felt overwhelmed by a situation. When did you last feel overwhelmed? 
Uh, perhaps it was sat in A&E with your four-year-old who'd uh, bounced off of the trampoline and had a nasty cut on their head. Maybe it was sat in the um, GCSE French exam, turning over the paper, looking at question number one and wishing you'd just done a little bit more revision. Uh, it could have been the first afternoon in a new job and you'd had all the induction training in the first three hours and you sat down and you realised you hadn't taken in a single thing. Uh, maybe it was about to call your best friend who just heard that their daughter had serious cancer and you had no clue what to say. Now, all of us, I'm sure, know what it's like to feel out of our depth, out of control, to be nervous, to be scared, to be uncertain, to feel overwhelmed. Uh, And we can feel that way in our church life as well. So many people living around us who haven't heard the gospel, who desperately need to know, uh, or a struggle to find enough workers to help with our midweek kids' ministry, uh, are lots of people we're bumping into with difficult, complex pastoral needs, and all of that against the backdrop of perhaps people moving on or struggling to meet our, our financial budgets. Uh, at 1 Samuel 17, this chapter, it also looks like the odds are stacked against the people of God. People are scared, they feel overwhelmed, they are staring a giant problem in the face and thinking there is just... No way out here. Uh, But what I want us to do this morning as we look at this passage together is to see that as David sums it up for us in verse 47, that the battle is the Lord's, that it is the Lord who saves, that in the face of great challenges we have a great Saviour and a great God and to be encouraged and to be strengthened by that. Uh, chapter 16, the chapter before, was the anointing of David as the, as the future king of Israel. He was a king in waiting and now as we move into chapter 17, he's the king in action. We see David the king stepping forward to, to take action. So let's get into this well-loved, this familiar story together and to think about the fact that the battle is the Lord's. Uh, and I want to consider four things with you. Uh, firstly, the reality of the battle. The reality of the battle. Uh, Things here at the beginning of the chapter, they look pretty bad, don't they? The Philistines have gathered their forces against Israel. The Philistines are on one hill, Israel are on the other. That's described for us in those first few verses. But but then this is where it turns really bad because verse 4, this champion called Goliath steps forward and everything about Goliath is intimidating. Uh, His height, his armour, his weapons... Uh, Even his voice is big as he shouts at the Israelites there in verse 8. And he lays down this challenge to this winner-takes-all fight. This three-metre-tall giant is completely intimidating. So it's not surprising, really, verse 11, we read that the Israelites are dismayed. They are terrified. Uh, And you can imagine the conversation, can't you, between two of the soldiers in the army... You can imagine the conversation goes something like this. Well, well, are you up for the fight? Well, not me, mate. Have you seen how tall he is? You're taller than me. You'd be a much better match to go out against him. Well, not me. I'm not going. What about the king? Remember, he was head and shoulders above the rest of us. That's why we wanted him as king in the first place. Wouldn't he be good to go out? Isn't Saul going to go and fight him? Now I've heard he's just as scared as the rest of us. Nobody's going to go and face this giant. Uh, Goliath looked intimidating. His words were intimidating. He was defying the armies of Israel. The enemy looked too big and too powerful. 
Uh, one of the things the chapter is teaching us is that the battle is real and the enemies are always there. There's always opposition to God's people. Uh, if you look at verse 5, Goliath's armour is described there as scale armour. Literally scales. Scales. Uh, in other words, Goliath is presented in sort of reptile-like language, snake-like language. And that takes us right back, if you know your Bibles, to the beginning of the battle, right back in Genesis chapter 3. God said there would be this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the seed of the snake that would, would go on throughout history. And the entire history of the Bible to this point has been this outworking of the conflict between the people of God and those opposed to him. Goliath just stands in a long line of different enemies, even if he's a little bit taller than the rest of them. It looks bad, it looks like a battle that is too big. So don't be surprised, friends, when it is a battle. Don't be surprised when it is difficult. Don't be surprised when there is opposition, and the opposition sounds very confident. Uh, One of my favourite quotes of the past few years was somebody who said, whenever the kingdom of God moves forward, there's always muttering in the background. That is always the way. It is not that the kingdom of Christ enjoys unhindered progress. There will always be challenges. There will always be those, perhaps, who seem interested for a while, who who even claim the name of Christ. Perhaps we even baptise them and then ultimately they fall away. Or there'll be powerful voices who speak eloquently about why Christianity is outdated, why God is now an irrelevance. The battle is real. The enemy is real. But George, hasn't hasn't Christ defeated the enemy? Aren't we in a different place now? Hasn't he crushed Satan at the cross? Isn't Satan a beaten foe? Well, he is. And we'll give more time to that later on. But, But whereas Satan is is defeated, he's not yet destroyed. And he's chained, but he's not yet silenced. And he can't win, but he's certainly going to go down fighting. The enemy is real. Uh, And there are times like this passage when the opposition seems really strong, when it seems really difficult, overwhelming. but, But things aren't always as bad as they look. Things aren't always as bad as they look. Uh, when my children were, were quite a lot younger, they're uh, older teenagers now, but uh, some years ago we were living over in the States, we were doing Bible college over there, uh, and we drove across from the East Coast right across to the West Coast. Uh, and on the West Coast we, we reached San Francisco, and while we were down on the quay there, uh, my daughter Grace, who was about eight at the time, found a really large crab shell about this sort of size. Uh, We were poor Bible college students at the time. We certainly couldn't afford real crab. We couldn't really afford real toys. So to be able for her to take this crab shell was a a great thing for her. And she seemed pleased with it. That was all good. Uh, It was a nice memento of our time. Uh, She was eight at the time, my daughter Grace. And um, so she, as I guess kids of that age often do, decided to name the crab shell. And she named the shell George after George Weasley from Harry Potter. Now, a few days later, we were still on the trip. We were in the car, and, uh, and all our stuff was in the car. It was getting pretty warm, and the crab shell was starting to smell, which wasn't very pleasant. Uh, and so my wife, Ellie, said this, Grace, we're going to have to get rid of George. He's really starting to smell. Let's bury him in the ground and leave him. And Grace, my daughter, just sort of crumpled up, and she started crying. And We thought she might be a bit disappointed. We thought she might take it a little bit badly, but 
Ellie, Ellie said, look, Grace, what's wrong? And through her tears, she said, oh, we can't get rid of Daddy just because he's smelly. <laughs> now, now, once Ellie had calmed her down and just kind of reassured her it wasn't actually Daddy we were talking about, it was just a crab shell, well, I think it was okay just to get rid of the shell and bury it or whatever we did. You see, things aren't always as bad as they might seem. And after all this noise and all this stuff about Goliath, did you notice verse 12? Have a look at verse 12. The writer just sort of begins very gently, now David. Now David. It's very quiet, it's very understated. But we get here a long description of of David. You see, at just the point when the enemy looks strongest, the Lord has his champion. The Lord has David in the wings. When David was anointed, the key message given was that the Lord doesn't just look at the outward, he looks on the heart. And the message is that we don't need to be just intimidated by the giant of Gath. The story is going to show that, uh, that, that we can look at uh, the man who, whose heart is after God. At just the point when the enemy looks really strong, the Lord has his champion. And for us, we needn't be intimidated by the size of the battle today. For the millions today who've got no interest in the gospel of Christ or are ignorant of what the gospel good news is or to feel intimidated when, when our culture has shifted on so many issues like sexuality or abortion and it seems like all the voices are in one direction and it's getting more complex to live as a Christian. Remember the battle is the Lord's. So God is not intimidated today. God is not wringing his hands today wondering how on earth can his kingdom stuff be done. He's not thinking how can I ever rescue my people and bring others into the kingdom. God is not panicking about the battle. Uh, Do you remember Corporal Jones in Dad's Army? Do you remember the character of Corporal Jones who always said don't panic, don't panic and then panicked and made everybody else panic as well? Well God never panics. He's got things in hand and that should reassure us this morning. The reality of the battle, the enemy is intimidating. At times things look overwhelming, but, but things aren't always as, as they look. Let's move on secondly to the weapons of the battle. The weapons. David turns up at the battle line and he's brought fresh supplies for, for his brothers. And, and while he's catching up on the news that he's going to take back to his dad, Goliath steps forward as usual. Uh, verse 16 tells us that this has been going on for 40 days now. Uh, that's nearly six weeks. Uh, and if we look at verse 24, no one is getting any closer to challenging him. There's, there's great fear now. It, it, it's not as if anybody's in training getting ready to take on Goliath. Everybody is just in, in fear. Uh, Saul has resorted to what he can do. He's, he's offering a place in the royal family, verse 25. He's offering his, his daughter in marriage. He's offering tax-free income for the rest of life. And yet, no prize seems to be big enough. Uh, David gets into a little bit of a domestic with his older brother. I'm sure many of us have been there over the years. Uh, Saul is very sceptical about his lack of experience. So so he's despised by his older brother. Saul is sceptical. And so verse 42, when he turns up, Goliath despises him as well. Goliath thinks they shouldn't even be in the same ring together. Like, send me somebody worthy to challenge me. Don't send me this, this boy out to take me on. So the one thing everybody has agreed on through the passage is that David is no good at all. David is not the right champion. They were looking for height, they were looking for experience, they were looking for age or power or skill with a sword. Or, and David just says, look, I'm not coming with any of those. 
I'm coming in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel. See, verse 47 sums it up. All those gathered here will know it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Those are not his means. That's not the way the Lord does things. The Lord doesn't do things using the strong and the powerful and the outwardly impressive. It's just not the way he tends to work. He uses, as the New Testament describes it, the weak things of the world to shame the wise. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. The church, the church at war, the church at battle is the church on its knees. It's the church in prayer, praying for divine power to demolish strongholds. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not putting on an impressive show. It's not having a Christian celebrity. Uh, Remember, Jesus once said that even if you could book the best special speaker of all time, the man who came back from the dead, if you could book him, people would still not believe. We are never going to impress somebody into the kingdom. We will not make the church so significant and so amazing with such influence that of course people will come to Jesus. This is God's work, God's way, by by God's Spirit. And so of course we look to do things as well as we can and we have people with the right gifts, leading things and serving and speaking, but, but the trust isn't in those things. That's not where the trust lies. Notice even the little weapons that David has, he doesn't trust them. He says, it's not by sword or spear, it's not by what I've got in my hands, it's the Lord who saves. The battle is the Lord. So it's got to be fought his way. And it's got to be fought by his power. Uh, I think of a young woman in my congregation who's, um, she's had her struggles over the past few years with her work. Uh, She's naturally very shy. And yet God has used that over this past year to meet regularly with an international student from Germany and that student has come to faith in Jesus just a few months ago, now back in her home country. It's not about the impressive. It's not about the super gifted. It's about God at work, using the means that he's provided. Uh, One more thing before we move on from this point. Remember, David isn't marching out foolishly with with a naive trust in God. When he speaks to Saul, he, he knows that the Lord has been with him as he's fought the lion and the bear when he's been caring for the sheep. It's not, it's, he's not completely green when it comes to a fight. He just looks a bit that way to everybody else. But, but even with that, David doesn't trust his experience. Notice verse 37. He doesn't just say, look, I'm, I'm great at fighting. Verse 37, the Lord who rescued me from the lion and the bear... He will rescue me from the, from the Philistine. His trust is in the Lord. His confidence is there. That's the one he's trusting in. But perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're struggling to trust God. You're, you see the opportunities to serve. You see the opportunities to, to fight for the Lord and be, and be part of the battle, to speak to others. But, but you're, just, you're just really nervous about it. You're just feeling really weak in faith. Well, what did David do to strengthen his faith? He remembered God's kindness in the past. He remembered God had, how God had been with him in the past. And perhaps some of us need to do that this morning, to, to just go back and remember how, how has God been faithful and kind to me in, in the days gone and use that to increase our faith now. Consider where we've seen God at work in, in, in past days. Remember how perhaps he used us when we were once young in the faith and, and believe that as God has worked then, 
so he can work now. So the reality of the battle and the weapons of the battle, let's come thirdly uh, and really importantly to the reason for the battle. The reason. Uh, Throughout the chapter there's been one repeating phrase or idea, a word that's come up a few times. It comes in verse 10 uh, and four other different verses and it's the word that gets translated either defy or despise. Defy or despise. Why is why is David so passionate to go out and face Goliath? Well, it's the dishonour that's being done to the Lord and his people. If you focus in on verse 25 and 26, it shows the difference really between David and the, and the rest. The Israelites are saying this. He says he comes out to defy Israel. That's what Israel is saying as a nation. But listen to David's terminology. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. So for the Israelites, it's a, it's a national issue, defying Israel. But David sees it's God's honour at stake. It's God's name, the armies of the living God. It is the living God and his army that is being belittled. And so when David and Goliath eventually come face to face, there's, a, there's almost like the pre-fight press conference, isn't there, before they actually fight. And the Philistine, verse 43, curses David by his gods. And David basically does the same. He curses the Philistine by the Lord. And, and in that speech there, 45 to 47, it's full of God. It's full of the Lord. Before he says at the end, all those gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle's the Lord's. And he'll give all of you into our hands. You see, it's about him. That's where David's passion lies. It's about him. It's about, it's about the Lord's name. It's his battle. It's his battle. And I think there's a couple of implications of that for us. First is this. What matters is God's reputation and God's name and not ours. We are not building a kingdom or fighting in this battle for ourselves or our own sake. We are not making a legacy for our own name. Now, it's not, if we can put it this way, that that Hollywell Church or Beeson Free Church build a good name and have a good reputation and are successful. It's about him. It's about his name and his honour and those things that are what matters. The battle is his. And so often, if we're honest, what we, what we are praying for as we're asking God to work is, is often about success for ourselves and success for our ministry and for the things we're involved in. Not so much that he is exalted and lifted up, but so that we are. Uh, what if the Lord were to give you, say, a hundred new believers over the next 12 months here? What if he were to do that? Could he trust you with that? Could he trust you with that and not steal his glory and bask in that success? I'm not sure he could trust me with that. So many of our prayers for seeing the gospel going forward and the battle being won are so that I feel, I feel better or I feel more successful or, or I feel we're making a difference. But the battle is the Lord's. It's his name and it's his reputation that counts. And, and so we might need to repent over the times when we've made it about us and about us fulfilling our aspirations and our hopes. But there's another implication of this. If it's his battle... If it's his battle, then the Lord really doesn't need us, though he does love to use us. He really doesn't need us, though he loves to use us. 
Uh, when I was at Bible College, one of my professors, Jim, had a son called Skylar. Now, Skylar was in his early 20s, but he had a, a mental age of just six. So he was always going to live at home. And uh, one day, uh, Jim's wife, Mona, was heading out for the day and uh, she pointed to a door and she said to Jim, look, could you fix that door handle? Now, Jim, self-confessed, wasn't much of a handyman, but he looked at the door handle and he thought, well, I expect that would take most men about an hour, that will take me about two, but yeah, I think I can get that done, yeah, I'll fix the door. And, and just at that point, Skylar came along and said, oh, Dad, can I help? And Jim said his face just fell because... Like he knew it was going to take a load longer. It was going to be a load more hassle. But he said, look, all right, son. And Skylar went to get his little uh, plastic toolkit to come along and fix the door handle. Uh, and he helped him fix the door. And six hours later, they were done. Uh, and Mona walked back in after the day out. And, um, and just as she did that, Skylar rushed up to her and, said, and pointed to the door and said, oh, mum, mum, I'll fix the door. Mum, I'll fix the door. Oh, it would be so much easier for the Lord, wouldn't it, if he just did things by himself without us. If he didn't use us at all, if he just said, look, the battle is mine, I'm going to do it all without you. And yet he just takes the much slower option of using you and me with our little blue plastic hammers. And he brings us into it. It's about him. And yet in his grace he uses us. Have you seen that? Do you know that this morning? Do you believe with all your heart it's about him and his honour, but, but in his grace he brings you in? Have you seen that happening? Can you look back over the past 12 months and say, yeah, God has been doing his work, it's been down to him, and yet, yes, in his kindness, I can just see the way he's been using me in that. The reason for the battle. But let me come lastly to the victor in the battle. The victor in the battle and to the fight itself with We've come to the fight in the blue corner, weighing in at some ridiculous weight, armed with all the high-tech armour you could imagine is Goliath, and in the red corner there is David with his sling. That's, that's all we've got. And the battle itself is, is short and sweet. Uh, my wife read through this sermon text, and she commented at this point, and I thought she was about to say short and sweet. That's much like you, dear, isn't it? But she said, oh, that's just like David, isn't it? Just like David. Well, David uh, flings the stone. The stone sticks in Goliath's head. Goliath hits the deck and David goes and cuts his head off and, and using Goliath's own sword. Round one is all over. I imagine the pay-per-view customers were not very happy. They, only, they didn't get much of a fight here at all. Now, it's tempting to read this chapter and look at this fight and battle and, and see it as a call for us to go out and fight our own giants. And the chapter does call us to have faith in God. But what has the key text been all the way through? The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And, and in this chapter, what chapter 16 was the anointing of David as the king. And now chapter 17 is the victory of that same anointed king. It is the Lord's chosen and appointed rescuer who wins. The anointed, spirit-filled, soon-to-be declared King David who rescues. And that is always the way, isn't it? That is always the way. It is not the Lord's people who rescue.